2: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: It's time now for Armchair Politics. Join host Tom Sumner for this weekly reality check on current events in local, state, and national politics, and the real issues that really matter. You too can be part of Armchair Politics. Find us on Facebook. We let the
1: dogs off their leash. Stay tuned. Because it's on now.
3: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics... Uh, um, our panel of uh, political pundits, our roundtable regulars, if you will, on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican, Henry Hatter. Good morning, Henry. Good morning, all. And it's always a treat when we're joined by political Emeritus Woodrow Stanley. Good morning, Wood. Good morning. Good morning. How are you all? Good
5: morning, Wood. morning,
3: Wood. Well, as you know, I always start with a few quotes, and, and the first one being uh, the finish the quote where I ask you, how would you finish this quote? And it goes like this. The doubts you have today are what?
5: Hmm.
1: The doubts you have today. Uh,
5: solutions for tomorrow? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: A point to consider for tomorrow.
3: You're actually uh, both really warm on that. The original quote was, The doubts you have today are the only limits you put on success tomorrow. Oh. That came from FDR. Oh, yeah. Mm.
7: Well, that's interesting. huh? Yeah. Hmm. That's, that's not one of his more uh, quoted... Um, that's true. Things, yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> no, but, uh, but uh, you know, just it goes to show how... Um you know we there, there are certain quotes that we remember from FDR but what we forget sometimes is how chock-full of good rhetoric his speeches were. Yeah. yeah. That's
5: true. Yeah. yeah.
3: Well, here's one. Um <laughs> and and I I hope you haven't heard this in person. Recently, but this is the uh, the quote that the, one of the quotes that caught my attention I don't think it's anybody's damn business whether I'm vaccinated or not.
1: Uh-oh. Oh,
5: oh, sounds nasty. Um, hmm, there's a lot of possibilities there. I don't know, <laughs> yeah, yeah I,
3: I wouldn't expect you to guess it, but it was uh, Republican Representative Chip Roy of Texas he told that to CNN. Uh, some of the 97 Republicans who aren't sharing their vaccination status told CNN they don't have a responsibility to model behavior to their constituents. Is vaccination privacy good policy for public officials?
1: No,
7: not these days. No, because they have so. to
1: set the tone for the population. Yeah,
7: they have yeah. To set I agree. The tone. Yeah, something is critical. As this, I, you know, I think in uh, a different time period when we were not in a pandemic, and I want to ask you, uh, did you have your measles or smallpox or whatever uh, in a just a normal time? Eh, maybe, but in this moment, I, you know, we're literally uh, we're we're dealing with life and death situations. Yeah, I, I don't think you can, as a public official. Uh, you can go with that. I'm not anyone's role model.
3: Yeah. And yeah, was, and, and,
7: and
5: and uh, Especially was no, now, I was gonna say, especially now since uh, we, we look like we're almost looking at another wave because so many folks didn't get vaccinated when they had the chance. Right. Uh, it's more important and, than ever.
1: And um, it's so important that children be protected <laughs> at all costs in this population because they're our future. And And what children see us do as adults they will emulate in the next generation so we have to set a sound policy for uh, things that threaten the entire health of the planet
3: well here's a a quote that got my attention this past week and and of course in the last 24 hours um, (laughs) in fact this is a little inside baseball here every tuesday Paul Rosicki uh, sends me an email with a few bullet points on things we might talk about. And um, I, ca- I compare it to the, the things that I'm collecting to see if I've missed anything. You are usually pretty much on the same page. Um, but he always adds at the end, and whatever else happens in the next 24 hours. <laughs> There's almost always something. <laughs> and, and, and there certainly was that um, yesterday in the House of Representatives uh, uh with the um, select committee investigating oh, yeah. the uh, uh insurgents on, on the, the attack on the state capitol on January sixth and I and I don't have any notes on that, but if if there's time we'll we'll comment on on our thoughts on, on what was said there. Um but uh this really caught my attention the quote is, Ridgway White and the Mott Foundation is unilaterally making a coercive move to strong arm this board and this district to relinquish their autonomy and bypass the board's bylaws and the democratic process. Then, school board president. Very, very close, Henry. It was the board's oh. treasurer, Laura oh. McIntyre. She called out the Mott Foundation for pulling funding after Flint Schools announced earlier this week that multiple programs were going to be put on hold for the 21-22 school year After the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation sent a letter that said they were pausing all grants with the district, the foundation blamed the board for pulling the funds, citing a June 16th resolution that said the superintendent was not allowed to communicate with the foundation freely without board supervision. Is it troubling when a funder like the Mott Foundation exercises influence over fund recipients like the Flint Community Schools in this case?
1: Well, I, I think just the very fact that they donate so much money to the Flint area and the Flint schools, uh, there can be no separation. It's like government. If you get grants from government, government controls. It's, so that's the way it is.
5: And it's historically, the Mott Foundation has been the the, the major player. In so much of Flint politics for a long, long time.
1: This is. (coughs) I think that's a dangerous quote that was made by the clerk, or by the uh, school board member, the treasurer, because because it 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 created a a division (coughs) between Flint schools and the My Foundation, and we should not have that. That has Mm -hmm. to be repaired. They got to go back and. And work with that.
7: I, I, I will say this, and, and I agree with most of the comments that have been said. Historically, uh, and I think this, is, this has been said, that my foundation has had a tremendous amount of, of um, influence uh, over the conditions of the dollars that they uh, donate. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not news. Uh, Here's here's where I think, and and again, this is the school board. It's easy to jump on the school board, but this is the school board and my foundation. When there have been differences of opinion, and and believe me, when Bill White was president of my foundation, we had private differences of opinion about uh, different matters, not all just specifically related to dollars that we were receiving, but some were related to political uh, issues in the marketplace uh, but none of those differences ever uh were front page or in the newspaper at all and that's that's where i think in Ridgeway's case and in the school board's case that hey look these are human, and they have different roles and 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 it doesn't really make a difference that the my foundation has a ton of money to give, but you have to respect the responsibilities and the status of those individuals on the receiving end particularly uh those that are public officials and i just think that you know uh they need to take a deep breath both parties and because if when you put it out there in the media you just can't get it back and 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 that part i it scares me because uh yeah. you know I, 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 I just
5: you know i was I was struck by how quickly Ridgway white Hit the reverse gear on that on that uh pulling of funds. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, I'm not know, a journalist, but I can't help thinking that there's there's a story inside this story.
1: Yes, there's a story behind were, this
3: one. And yeah,
1: I know oh yeah. what it is. You go ahead first. <laughs> there's a story behind it. It has to do with that new school district. Uh that new school, uh school that they created and uh it's in competition with flint schools we knew that was going to happen well uh, and it was prognosticated that that would happen so there's nothing new there everybody knew the cards were on the table for that and that discussion should have been already closed
3: well you know and, I, and i think it's interesting that that the mott foundation or at least uh, ridgeway white appears to be siding with the administrator um, and in wanting to deal with them and maybe not the board.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, sometimes you see the same frictions on the, the school board as you see in the Flint City Council. And
1: that's, yeah. Uh,
7: can you imagine? Can you imagine, Tom, your point? Can you imagine that, though? I mean, that's not smart. On uh, you know, you can't uh, say, uh, "Look." Here's a, a superintendent that's hired by a board, uh, and yeah. you say, "Hey, look, we're just going to go uh, over, and we're not going to deal with the board. We're going to." That's cutting the superintendent's yes. legs off. That's not smart. And,
1: and not that's only not that, that's undermining. Right. That's also undermining the electorate itself, which is the people people elected these people to do a job
3: and and right. i think henry's right. point is a good one about the new school district and when that first that funding was announced that it would be cut i, I thought maybe it was the beginning of the end of the flint community schools yeah um, it's just about you know, they only have 3500 students
5: it, it, yeah and, and the numbers are dropping continually
3: well, and and to uh, and 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 there's a larger point too that I think is worthy of mention before we go to break here in about a minute and a half, and and that is, um, people seem to be you know I'm all for transparency, but people seem to be airing their laundry in public a lot more than they did just a very few years ago, and and I think would kind of alluded to that when he talked about you know we had differences but you know we we solved them behind closed doors and then made a unified public uh appearance well,
5: don't you think social media encourages that where everybody feels they need to say their piece yeah. on facebook or something similar yeah you know.
3: free speech Oh, we could do, we could do a whole segment on on the list of reasons why I think that happens, and you know it it's it's social media, it's the twenty four hour news cycle, it's yeah. new and inexperienced journalists, it's a, a shift in the way journalism is is being um, uh, practiced. It's uh, there's there's a long list of reasons why people now they just. They just start calling each other out in public instead of, uh, you know, calmly uh, coming up to with um, solutions and then presenting the solutions. They present the problem.
1: Anyway, and it's the expectations of the X generation. You know, they want, right. uh, they you know they have different expectations. All right, we're Life gonna take a short so
3: break. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be back with more right after uh, after we let our broadcast partner squeeze in a few words
0: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair politics continues now on the Tom Sumner program with our roundtable regulars, uh, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Politico Emeritus Woodrow Stanley. Mayor Sheldon Neely's declaration of a gun violence emergency in Flint caught others in city and Genesee County government off guard Friday as several elected officials said they had no information about it or what's expected of them. Three city council members said they had not yet been briefed on uh, Neely's plan to combat the increased shootings and homicides in Flint, and county officials said they had yet to hear what help the mayor is requesting. Neely said an emergency declaration would allow him to provide a high level of resources to address gun violence in Flint. Flint has had 39 homicides this year, Flint Police Chief Terrence Green uh, reported. This is an increase of more than 30% from this time last year, according to the city's most recent crime statistics. Non-fatal shootings in the city have also risen by 80% year over year, with 188 reported in 2021 compared to just 88 in all of 2020 is the mayor right to declare emergency in order to access funding to develop plans and resources to fight gun violence
1: well he has that prerogative
5: uh, again yeah, <laughs> it's this a way of gathering more funds i suppose yeah um, but it, it just struck me as a little curious way of doing that i guess i mean uh, terms of any any different actions, I don't know if there's going to be any different actions on the part of police or other officials, uh, except for getting more funds for some programs we were talking about.
1: Well, I I was surprised <laughs> at the cost of the uh, the three hundred thousand uh, dollars for too much. I think I think the helicopter. Oh yes.
5: Well, yeah, that's, that's another issue there. Uh,
3: yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about that next, but. Um, you know, I've I've learned that that when a mayor or other public official um, says that they're taking an action to uh, um, increase resources, they're talking about money. Right.
7: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, what the the idea of the the emergency order? I, I mean, you know, I I think that there is some logic. I, I, the implementation uh, in terms of briefing. Partners and, and so forth. Uh, that's that's probably the, the complaint that uh, either totally stated or or um, uh, insinuated. But the the notion of emergent, you know, declaring an emergency is not a you know that's that's done uh, in a number of instances. Except that this whole notion of declaring a gun violence emergency is you know, it's nebulous. I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, you know, like for instance, what federal or state statute uh, is, or guideline does it reference, you know, that you have to declare? Like for instance, if you have a natural emergency, a flood or whatever, uh, certain governmental units have to declare an an emergency before applying for state or federal assistance i I don't think that there's anything on the books regarding violence i don't think but the logic of declaring uh, uh not that any other i don't think that there's any other cities that have done this but we'll you know we'll see
3: yeah, I wonder about the uh, uh about the legal structure too would um because we think of emergencies and we've seen this being argued out in in Lansing um over the the governor's emergency powers uh dealing with the pandemic and there were two things that occurred to me uh, about this story. We generally think of declaring an emergency for something like you mentioned, a natural disaster, um, you know, a, a hurricane, a flood, a, an earthquake, um, and maybe even a infrastructure collapse. But um, we think of those things as, even though they can drag out for months and sometimes years to get resolved, it was, you know, something that happened in the moment. And, and to... Um, declare an emergency over a societal issue is, um, is, is stretching it out a bit. And I'm not sure what the legal authority is. And the other, well, thing, the other thing that caught my attention, and I'll just say this and then open it up, is um, the uh, idea that, um, well, I lost my train of thought, so go ahead and take it away, guys
5: i was just going to say, I, even in terms of the, uh, the the rate of murders and violence and so forth and shootings. Oh, that's what I it mean, was, Paul.
3: Is is you know the the statistics sound very dramatic, but you know a lot of people were were quarantined a year ago.
5: Yeah, yeah, I say it's higher than last year, but I mean if you go back to some previous years, it's. Uh, as, as far as I know, if Foot I recall, traffic
3: in retail it, stores is yeah, higher than it was yeah, in a it, year it, ago.
5: It's, it's similar to, to some other years we've had. It's a little higher, but uh, it's, not, it's not like it's doubled or tripled from what it ha- had been at, at its highest rates. So it's of concern, obviously, but I, I didn't see it as a dramatic increase compared to some some of the, the, the worst years of the last decade or so.
7: so um, I was, I was going to say also that when, when you take a step like declaring uh, an emergency now, um, either I think the previous mayor, Weaver declared an emergency, relate, a health emergency related to the pandemic. We understood that there was no controversy around it. But when you declare a, vi- a violence emergency, you want to have your ducks in, in order in terms of some of the things that you could share. You want to share those. Otherwise, it looks like a stunt.
3: Well, Henry brought up the helicopter, and we talked about that last week on the show, and I talked about it with uh, all of the candidates uh, last week, the uh, city council candidates, um, that primary coming up next Tuesday. And incumbents and challengers alike were really pretty skeptical of the, uh, of the helicopter, but apparently Flint Police Department officers uh, convinced the city council to go through with it and uh, lease a helicopter um, for uh, three months uh, at a cost of $300,000. And, and I, I ask again, can a helicopter patrolling Flint be as effective in fighting crime as more boots on the ground?
5: Yeah, <clears throat> that was one thought I had. The other thought I had was, uh, I don't know what a helicopter costs, but if it, it, you figure $100,000 a month, uh, it wouldn't it's uh, I'm again I'm guessing. I don't know if the average cost of a helicopter, but I'm gonna guess you could pay for a helicopter within a few years at that rate. Uh, so I
7: don't know. Remember we also, that, uh, I was just gonna say real quick, Henry. We also have a law enforcement partner that has several helicopters. Right. And they're right. They, and they're deployed uh over the skies of Flint uh from time to time. So and that's the state police.
3: And you know what surprised me about that wood is that uh, that we haven't seen anything about consulting with the state police and and taking some measurements about how crime had been affected by the presence of the helicopter when it was patrolling Flint, right. because there have been arguments that say, like for example, with that that whole brouhaha about the club Sunoco and and people hanging out there in the parking lot and partying, that um, putting a spotlight on that from a helicopter would help break up some of those things. And there there were ways to use it to have a positive impact. But what I haven't seen is is any. Um, Credible study or numbers of on the nights when there was a helicopter in the sky, crime went down.
5: Right, good point. Yeah, I I had Mm -hmm. the state police pulled out of of, of offering those services because I mean, rather you know, frequently I recall hearing the helicopter going around Flint on on a good many nights. So it's uh, again, I don't know what the schedule was, but it was certainly it was not it was not uncommon to hear the state police helicopter going around.
3: I can only imagine that that there's there's uh, some thought that that the state police helicopter is not on demand.
5: Yeah, could be. And again, I, I was struck yeah. by the, connect, the the connection they made to uh, to drag racing, particularly. I mean. I I suppose that's an issue but compared to a lot it of It is a
3: much bigger issue according to some of the candidates running for city council than we have considered here on this show.
5: I heard some of those comments, yeah.
3: Um a lot of the candidates are hearing from people when they're campaigning that that's that's one of uh that that's one of um residents' uh beefs.
5: Hmm. Well, I know I, we, I, I live fairly close to Dort Highway, and on, on weekend nights you can hear you can hear the noise a lot. So it's there, um, usually around eleven o'clock to one o'clock in the morning on a Friday or Saturday or Sunday night.
1: I, I would just like to make one final comment on the mayor's call for emergency fund. Sure. I think that that was really. Um, uh, that really arose as a result of that woman, a 21-year-old, that shot the policeman, or shot at the policeman. And we have not had an incident for many, many years like that. <clears throat> and I think uh, that that might have inspired people that something was wrong. In plan- we don't want that kind of stuff here. So and, and it's, if that's the reason, it was a good reason for having uh, requesting the emergency funds.
3: Well, it would be yeah, interesting yeah. to see, um, you know, as, as some of the uh, other elected officials said, you know, some sort of strategy or plan on how uh, the emergency uh, declaration itself and any resources, a.k.a. money it attracts, would be deployed and, um, you know, what the plan is. How, how, how do they expect to be effective with a few more dollars in the bank?
5: Yeah, yeah.
3: Well, here's one. When we talk about trying to be more aggressive about law enforcement, here's kind of a scary thing that came up. The Genesee County Jail has been above capacity for almost two weeks. As of Thursday, July 22nd, the jail had been overcrowded for 13 days, said Genesee County Sheriff Chris Swanson. After the 10-day mark, Swanson signed a letter to Genesee County Circuit Court Chief Judge Duncan Beagle to start reviewing inmates files to lower that number. The state mandates that the Genesee County Jail hold only up to 580 inmates at a time. There were currently uh, 645 inmates housed in the jail. The question then becomes, is jail space adequate for cracking down on violence and crime in and around the city of Flint? Um, And and uh, who do we let go? How do we decide? You know that, yeah. that we just let people out of jail.
5: You know, I, I was surprised to hear that was an issue. Now, I, I would have thought it would have been a bigger issue when they weren't were no were not having trials during the worst of the pandemic, and I believe they started having trials again. I think, which I thought would kind of ease up some of the uh, the uh, occupancy rates of the jail.
3: Well, yeah, because some people would be. Um, exonerated or right. released in some other way, and and some would be moved into state and federal prisons.
5: Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, I thought the, the, the restarting of trials would, would ease the problem, so I was surprised to hear that at this time that that was an issue, rather than six months ago.
7: You know, the uh, the issue of jail space is is always on the table it's it, it just depends on whether or not it it, it makes headline news but I, I can tell you having been on the county board and then you know from the city side uh that it's always an issue uh you can when people talk about you know whether or not the jail is is, is a- adequate size or not uh, you you talk to the the folks who are the the experts in this in this area, and they can tell you that you can build a jail that's twice this size, and it'll be filled um, mm-hmm. within the next few months. So, it, it's the size of the jail isn't uh, you know the issue uh, so much. But I, but the other thing too, in terms of jail space, you have a number of uh, out uh, county uh, jails spaces that are available for rent. And uh, they they've been used uh, in other in other times.
3: It it also raises the uh, the question about how many of the people that are sitting in uh, in jail are there because of mental health issues and not
7: necessarily oh,
6: yeah. criminal. Oh,
7: sure. 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 Right. Sure. Sure.
5: I think you had one of the, either the current or the previous sheriff on one time, Tom, and I think was it I forgot the percentage, but he suggested that a significant majority or near majority of jail inmates were there either for drug issues and or mental health issues
8: Yeah, um,
1: yeah. for sure they haven't decided yet how to classify young adults with uh uh facing criminal charges for uh, issues that are not uh, felonious. And, um, and that adds to the crowding of face in jails. And, Actually, you and know, uh, still
5: Good point, Henry. That, you know, that touches upon another issue, that the United States has got one of the highest incarceration rates of any country in the world uh, in general. I mean, that's, we, we lock up more people, than, than almost any other country in the world. So that's, that, that goes beyond just Flint and Genesee County, obviously.
1: I don't know where that discussion should start, but it, it, obviously we have a crisis here. And, well, it has, and, and it, we, it
3: has to revolve around issues of mental health, issues of drug treatment, and, uh, and, and also... Um, what to do about nonviolent offenders um i, I don't want to say victimless crimes because uh you know it, it the public w- is a uh, victim is always affected in some way but but there's a big difference between you know a, a wife beater or an armed robber and uh somebody who didn't pay their child support
1: mhm mm-hmm. yeah
3: Well, Flint Community Schools will likely be keeping masks for the 21-22 academic year. Wellness Program Medical Director Gwen Reyes announced her recommendation for students, staff, and teachers to keep the masks on for the upcoming school year at the July 21st Board of Education meeting. The recommendation was made taking into account that only students aged 12 and over are even eligible for the vaccine, Reyes said. She noted the district may reconsider when 70 to 80 percent of the district is vaccinated. Should masks be required for students under 12 and non-vaccinated students?
1: Well, that depends on what the science says. Again, we've got to listen to the authority that on that yeah. you're, you're without right, politics right. involved. <laughs>
5: That seems to be no. the current medical advice
3: these days.
4: Yeah, right. but this is but this, this is
3: coming from the uh, uh, wellness program medical director. Uh, are we considering yeah. Gwen Reyes uh, to be the voice of science, or is she just another public official?
7: Well, well, well she a occupies lot a she occupies a position within the medical sphere, and which which would suggest to me. That she is getting her information from those, the CDC and the like. Uh, so, yeah, I think she speaks with authority.
1: And, and school districts, uh, if, if the law is not specific enough, where it can be de- deemed uh, violated by school districts, school districts will make their individual choices because they're individual entities.
3: You know, I, I think I think we touched on this last week, and I and I can't help bringing it up again. Is is the fact that people and and forget Republicans and Democrats because a lot of people are trying to make uh, mask usage and and vaccine acceptance uh, a partisan issue, but there are people who are holding out on getting the vaccine. And there seems to be some reporting that says they are more likely to get and be seriously affected by COVID-19. If that continues to be the case, if people who are vaccinated are not getting infected and people who aren't vaccinated are getting infected, will that eventually encourage uh, the science deniers and vaccine naysayers to say, you know, well, maybe I ought
1: to get the vaccine?
5: I there's really, there's a
1: religious argument that goes with that, too. People don't...
5: But no, I think you're saying something this past week. Yeah. I mean, a number of big-name uh, big, big name Republicans have come out very clearly saying, let's get, you know, get the vaccine. They had not been quite so adamant about that in, in previous times. Yes but uh, you, get a, you, you get a little sense of change of tenor among those who were skeptical about the vaccines within the last week or two.
1: Yes, that's noticeable. It is noticeable. So
5: hopefully it will have some real effect. Um,
1: well, but the concern is all of those people in the south, in the southwest, uh, in Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Arkansas, who refused, and I believe, uh, I don't remember what the statistic is, but it's a very inordinate number, and they don't seem to be moving any closer to becoming vaccinated. Do you
3: think we'll have a, uh, a vaccine for uh, elementary students from, from 5 to 12 um, in time for this school year?
1: If we do, it would be argued that, uh, that we need more testing. Yeah, so so just a few weeks away. That's actually, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's problematic, yeah.
5: So that could be tough. But and I, that, I
1: just keep hearing that. That's my big worry
5: about the fall is I, that we're going to see a big, a big spike in, in cases in schools with these the kids under 12 especially yeah. who are not vaccinated. That's a, that's a major concern.
1: And guys, here's the real here's the real argument. There are parents that are absolutely adamant and will fight uh, to make sure that the kids do not get the vaccine. And on the other side, there's the opposing point of view. You must have a vaccine shot before you enter school with my kids. And there's, there's this great divide in the school community and how law enforcement and policymakers are going to uh, you know, uh, tread that kind of water, I'm not sure. Have you been seeing
5: much of that in Clio, Henry? A lot of it? Uh, I see that.
1: some of it. Well, I see some of that. Yeah, I see some of it. And the parents are adamant. But what I see uh, mostly are the ones nationally broadcasted, where people are absolutely animated that they will not send their kids to school where the kids are not vaccinated. Then you have the opposing argument.
3: Well, I remember Holy. clinicians coming into the school when I was a kid to give out the uh polio the polio vaccine. Oh, yeah. The, the sulk sure. uh, the the old sugar cube. Yeah. Well, things things have certainly changed with uh regard to what people can require and not require. We have to take a uh a short break here, but we're going to continue with more armchair politics and uh, our weekly roundtable. After we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in, or do whatever they do when we go to break, they are WFOV, our Voices Radio, ninety-two point one LPFM, Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Hearing. And uh, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well.
1: Hello there, citizens, Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner Program. Don't forget, stay
3: dangerous.
1: Darkwing Duck out.
4: While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services.
6: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues now on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Woodrow Stanley. A Michigan congressman is criticizing COVID-19 bonuses awarded to county commissioners and other elected officials in Shiawassee County. (laughs) American Rescue Plan dollars were intended to help frontline workers and families impacted by the pandemic. Not elected officials, said U.S. Representative Dan Kildee, a Democrat whose district is on the edge of uh, Shiawassee. Kildy was uh, reacting to news that Republican county commissioners last week signed off on more than $500,000 in quote, hazard pay for dozens of county employees. What's unusual is that commissioners rewarded themselves and other elected officials. <laughs> workers, workers got at least $1,000, but many received much more. The county board chairman and sheriff each got $25,000 along with the county administrator. The prosecutor and county clerk each received twelve thousand five hundred. Commissioner Marlene Webster, who got five thousand dollars before taxes uh, were withheld, returned the money. Um, this is one of those stories that has a bit of an update to it uh, from when I put this together. But was this a clear misappropriation of funds?
1: Sounds like it.
5: Sure seems to be. Yeah.
1: In fact, uh, for the- Elected officials should serve at the interest of the people, pure, uh, um, simple, and plain. Uh, they take whatever conditions are there, and and they work with those conditions and ask for uh, no special privileges.
5: You know, I, I don't know what the salary is for the county board chair in Shiawassee County, but didn't that $25,000 almost double his salary?
7: I'm the, sure. Uh, yeah. So, the qu- question was, was this uh, misappropriation? I think there's a, a clear way of describing this. Was this a bonehead move? Uh, <laughs> and, and I was going to yeah. ask you that, Wood,
3: if this seemed word. a little <laughs> yeah. a little clunky. Absolutely.
7: Absolutely. I mean, you know, let's not be uh, kind about this. Look, uh, if you would, you know, if you're talking about uh, county officials, city officials, uh, school uh, board officials, across this country and particularly in this environment but in certain areas hey look they're working under hazardous conditions every day and and so to to, i just this is why people and haven't been a public official for a long long time as is henry but this is why people uh rank public officials pretty low on (laughs) on most respected public You know, um, people. It's just because of bonehead decisions like this. Just stupid.
3: It was, uh, you know, originally sort of designed that representatives would serve a short time, usually at their own expense. The fact that there is pay is hazard pay. Right, Wood? I mean, that's kind of how that evolved. It was like, this is a tough job. Public officials ought to be making some money for it. Sure. And, and that's how the, yeah, the yeah. salaries—that's that's how the salaries <laughs> even emerged.
5: But I'm—I'm—I'm but I'm guessing most of the, the the board meetings were probably virtual, anyhow. And we, meanwhile, folks are going door to door to pick up trash or turn on the water supply or do other things around Chiawassee County, who were having, having to really be on the front lines uh, were the ones who probably deserve that kind of money. But I—I'm I, guessing most of the board meetings were were virtual and relatively secure.
3: yeah i don't i don't think they Yeah,
5: I, i i I like woods term i think bonehead move is a a good (laughs) phrase for that yeah (laughs) i
3: think that's that's probably the phrase of the day yeah well and as long as we're talking about bonehead moves a state representative from kent county in western michigan was sentenced to 15 days in jail friday and placed on probation for two years for drunken driving Representative Brian Posthumus, a Republican from Oakfield Township, apologized for the incident and told the sentencing judge he has joined Alcoholics Anonymous and and is committed to staying sober. Gongwer News Service uh, reported this story. According to a news release, Posthumus was leaving his family's farm when his Jeep went off the road. He hit a mailbox and his car rolled over. The accident took place in Ada Township, which is about 15 minutes from Grand Rapids. Tests showed Posthumus' uh, blood alcohol level was 0.13%, according to the release. In Michigan, it is a crime when a driver has a bodily alcohol content of 008 or greater. Uh, posthumous, who pledged to refund the state a portion of his uh, annual salary, which is $71,685, for the 15 days he spends in jail, pleaded guilty to operating a vehicle while intoxicated. Since my arrest, not a day has gone by that I haven't thanked God that no one was injured because of my mistake, Posthumus said in the Friday news release. The day, that day was the wake-up call I needed to make serious changes in my life. Do you think he will end up facing more consequences in this era of cancel culture?
1: Hmm. Yes, I do. He, uh, Brian belongs to a very well-known and uh, decorated family on that side of the state from Ada Township.
5: He, he's and, the son of the,
1: the, the posthumous who ran for governor, right? Yeah, he's son yeah. of uh, Lieutenant a, Governor posthumous. Right. So there, there, there are consequences for that. I don't think that he'll get out of that that easily, and he shouldn't. Uh, he, he broke the law, and he needs to um, he needs to pay for the consequences. But I think he's moving in the right direction. He says, oh, I did something wrong. I drove drunk. And uh, I'm, uh, you can have half of my salary to pay for whatever it costs the state to, to imprison me. And I think that those are the kind of things that people want to see in their uh, governmental officials. They want to see change and, uh, and behavior so when you're caught like that.
7: I, I I agree, Henry, and the opposite, I used the word uh bonehead before about uh public dis uh, behavior and, and, and in relationship to posthumous public behavior, I've used the term contrition. And and I think <laughs> you know, we we are at, as you alluded to, the the public by and large are forgiving. If you if you own up to your mistake, if you come up front and say, Hey, look, you know, I, I, I had one too many. well, on second thought, I had seven too many. <laughs> yeah, rolling
3: rolling a Jeep would isn't your usual uh day <laughs> <UI>. right. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well when
7: Right. when when you thought about it a little bit you said, Well, you know, it, it was a king. I, I'm sorry. I, right. it, you know. yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> or or in the words of Justice Kavanaugh, I like beer.
5: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he likes it a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, let's see if we got time to squeeze one more in before the top of the hour. A federal judge in Detroit cannot punish Lynn Wood because the election conspiracy peddling attorney has never practiced in her jurisdiction and Ooh. technically did not meet the dictionary definition of broadcast when he shared a video of a recent court hearing in a way that would uh, violate local rules, Wood's attorney wrote in a filing submitted Thursday. The argument from Wood attorney Paul Stabling is part of a larger effort to stave off sanctions for lawyers who filed a lawsuit last year filled with false and misleading information in a failed attempt to help former President Donald Trump win Michigan. Does this seem like a reasonable defense? No. (laughs) I didn't do it in your neighborhood so I'm not guilty.
1: Yeah, that sounds ugly. Um and as long as we have these kind of incidents that where um, judges and those who are willing to forgive without some kind of retribution, paying retribution, uh, that's bad. And it's, the government is, will continue to erode.
5: Yeah, again, they found a curious little loophole there, but uh, the the guilt is still there, I think.
3: Yeah. Well, the U.S. Department of Justice will not pursue an investigation into Michigan nursing homes based on COVID-19 policies implemented by Governor Gretchen Whitmer's administration. According to a letter sent Thursday to Whitmer's office, the decision comes after federal authorities Working under President Donald Trump requested documents surrounding the policies in August, alleging Whitmer and other Democratic governors issued orders which may have resulted in the deaths of thousands of elderly nursing home residents. In a letter, a DOG official tells Whitmer's chief counsel, Mark Totten, that their inquiry was not proceeding. Was this investigation purely political?
5: Mm.
1: Again, mm-hmm.
5: yeah I, I don't know the numbers or anything else, but it, it when it first was, was was announced, that was my initial reaction, but again, I don't know any numbers or any hard facts beyond that. I don't think
8: no
1: there's not enough information to really make a hard stand on this without looking ridiculous
3: and and I wonder if uh if if deciding not to pursue an investigation is purely political
1: yes. hmm.
3: I imagine yeah. you can look at it both ways. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yes.
3: Well, this is uh, Armchair Politics uh, on the Tom Sumner Program with our uh, Roundtable Regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Politico Emeritus Woodrow Stanley. And we're going to take a, a short break for top of the hour ID, but we have uh, the second half. Of armchair politics uh, coming up after this uh, short break, and we'll be talking about. Uh, well, we'll we'll move our attention to um, uh, Washington when we uh, return for the second half of armchair politics. Plus, we have our. Uh, weird and wacky stories—we call the X Files—will be coming up toward the uh, the end of the hour. So, stay tuned, and uh, we'll be back with more Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program right after this.
5: Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.